Welcome to the Shortwave Report. I'm your host and producer, Dan Roberts. This Shortwave Report is a 30-minute review of news and opinion heard on the shortwave radio and the internet in Northern California. Listening to international broadcast at home is quite easy. You just need a shortwave radio with a schedule of English language broadcast or a computer or smartphone with an internet connection. To help you with this, I'll announce times, frequencies, and website addresses at the conclusion of each series of stories. At the website for this show, that's outfarpress.com, you can listen to the past five shortwave reports, find advice for listening to shortwave at home, and find internet links for global news sources. Please check it out and tell a friend. In today's edition, you'll hear reports from Sputnik Radio, Radio Havana Cuba, NHK Japan, and Germany's Radio Deutsche Welle. We will begin with Sputnik Radio. On his program called Going Underground, Afshin Ratansi interviewed retired Colonel Lawrence Wilkerson, former Chief of Staff to U.S. Secretary of State Colin Powell. They discussed 9-11, the military-industrial complex and its desire for an endless war, which in part fueled the expansion of NATO, how 9-11 can be laid at the feet of Saudi Arabia, which he considers the biggest state sponsor of terrorism, and Biden's executive orders to declassify 9-11 documents. Sputnik Radio. Joining me now from Falls Church in Virginia is retired Colonel Larry Wilkerson, former U.S. Secretary of State Colin Powell's Chief of Staff and the man involved in the decision to invade Iraq. Fear and rage was how they made the decisions they made in the aftermath. There was a quick realization really coming after the debris pile and the megaphone in New York where the president said, and the people who did this will hear from us that his polls would skyrocket, and they did. They went towards 90% and beyond. And that he could, as Karl Rove told him, be assured of re-election, unlike his father, in 2004, if only he played this right. So they quickly became motivated by political considerations, domestic political considerations, as well as that rage. How quickly did uh, the poll numbers after 9-11 mix up theoretically with a strategy involving defense companies on K Street and how this could be manipulated into a, into a money-spinning idea off the bodies of those who were killed? Well, this is Vice President Cheney's forte here. After all, he'd been the Secretary of Defense who introduced Halliburton to outsourcing for the Pentagon. Halliburton actually did this study that came back and said, oh, this is a marvelous idea, Mr. Secretary. We should do this. And of course, we proceeded to do it. After that, Eisenhower's warning in January 1960 about the military-industrial complex was just put on steroids. The complex became desirous of endless war, endless war that would feed them like a cash cow and keep them alive and breathing and their CEOs making enormous salaries and their companies solvent. Um, that's why we expanded NATO to a certain extent, too, so we could bring the Poles and others into buying these equipments made by our arms merchants. So this complex was largely responsible for the military staying in Afghanistan for 20 some odd years. Why do journalists still claim now that the 9-11 attacks were planned in Afghanistan when they were planned by Saudis in San Diego and in the United States? 
Well, that's a continuing fault, I think, of the 9-11 Commission and other efforts associated with it. I think you can lay 9-11 and what happened on 9-11 at the Saudi feet as well as any other state in the world, perhaps more so. They are the greatest state sponsor of terrorism in the world, um, and they still are. Whether or not royals had anything to do with it, that is to say people in the actual government in Riyadh, is another matter and a matter that should be investigated to the nth degree. What about Biden's executive order to release these 28 pages from the 9-11 report? Do you think uh, within the next six months they will be released or just released heavily redacted to protect the United States' great receiver of arms to bomb Yemen? If the latter, if they are released, I think it'll probably be redacted. And I look at the 6,000-page Senate Select Committee on Intelligence report on torture, mainly focused on the CIA, and I've read the executive summary and done the inquiry myself with the North Carolina Commission of Inquiry on Torture. And I've got to say that would be even more devastating than the 28 pages, in my view. If you read that 6,000-page report, you would have to, I think, demand some accountability or be unelected pretty shortly by the American people. Did Osama bin Laden win? I mean, you've talked so uh, eloquently about the corruption, the torture, the heroin, the relations between the CIA and the ISI in Pakistan, and now the United States has lost so much in this world since the 9-11 attacks. Uh, did he... Seven point. $7.2 trillion, counting the cost over time to take care of the veterans we've Well, created. in fairness, they paid uh, a lot of defense company salaries at the high board level, Absolutely. as we've talked about. But, I mean, did he win in trying to destroy what was the origin idea of the American dream? I think when we're looking at Osama bin Laden's projections, particularly in that one fatwa, I think it was 1998, I think he succeeded beyond his wildest dreams as he succeeded, as he thought, with the Soviet Union. Their empire ended. I think our empire is going down pretty fast right now. And I'm beginning to believe that it's unsalvageable. Retired Colonel Larry Wilkinson, thank you. That interview was by Afshin Ritansi on his program called Going Underground on Sputnik Radio, current name for the voice of Russia, available online at rt.com, as well as on YouTube, look for Going Underground. Next, Radio Havana, Cuba. More on the profits made by weapon manufacturers and military contractors after 9-11. A viewpoint on the U.S. prison at Guantanamo Naval Base, still in operation nine years after Obama pledged to shut it down. Seventeen Latin American countries are meeting in Mexico to discuss the future of the Organization of American States, which most of the countries want to replace. Radio Havana, Cuba. The September 11th terrorist incidents and mass carnage in the United States was great news for American weapons manufacturers and military contractors. 
who led their foreign counterparts by far in generating a stunning $7.35 trillion in revenues over the course of the last 20 years. U.S.-based Axios News Outlets reported Saturday, citing a defense news database, that the overwhelming majority of the astronomical income came from the Pentagon, which spent trillions of dollars on its military occupation of Afghanistan and Iraq, tying the massive incursions to the 9-11 attacks in what Washington proclaimed as its global war on terror. Quote, since 9-11, war has become modernized, which means it's fought with extremely expensive weapons bought from highly profitable private sector companies, the report noted, insisting, quote, the days are gone when most of the defense budget was spent directly on soldiers. The shameful images related to the withdrawal of the United States from Afghanistan after 20 years of military intervention have many Cubans wondering when the Yankees will finally abandon the prison they have set up at Guantanamo Naval Base, imposed on Cuba more than a century ago. These facilities are crowded by prisoners brought from Afghanistan and other distant countries. They lacked the most elementary rights, were victims of torture, and never knew what they were accused of, nor did they have any lawyers to defend them. This horrid place qualifies to go down in history as one of the most serious violations of human rights committed by the United States government ever. But it's also an offense to Cuba, because these violations occurred in the Cuban territory of the Guantanamo province, where the United States maintains a military base against the will of the Cuban people and government. Cuba's long battle and rejection against the economic, commercial, and financial blockade of the United States is known worldwide, and the United Nations registered reliable proof through the approval by an overwhelming majority of nations from all continents of a resolution calling on Washington to lift this criminal measure. However, the United States' withdrawal from Afghanistan brings to light the existence of a prison that has no legal basis whatsoever and shows to the international public opinion the presence of a military base on the Cuban territory, a nation that has been suffering for six decades a brutal blockade. Cuba, the alleged failed state, according to recent statements by American President Joe Biden, who has not even modified any of the more than 240 measures implemented to intensify the blockade during the administration of Donald Trump, can add to the legitimate fight against this policy to clauses that affect Cuban sovereignty. The closure of the prison and of the naval base in Guantanamo. This will not be the first battles that we Cubans have fought against the empire throughout recent history. The return to Cuba of the child Eliana Gonzalez and the five heroes who for years suffered unjust imprisonment in U.S. jails are fresh victories in everyone's memory. The blockade, the prison, and the military base, Yankee violations of Cuban sovereignty, must be eliminated so that peace and coexistence can prevail between our nations. A total of 17 countries of the Community of Latin American and Caribbean States, or CELAC, to be held in Mexico, will be represented by their heads of state or government at the sixth summit of the regional organization. Among the presidents who will be in Mexico for the regional conclave are of Alberto Fernandez of Argentina, Miguel Diaz Canel, Cuba, Carlos Alvarado Quesada of Costa Rica, Guillermo Lasso of Ecuador, and Luis Lacalle Pou of Uruguay. The 6th CELAC Summit 
will address the future of the Organization of American States, the OAS, as one of the central issues. Mexican Foreign Minister Marcelo Ebrard has stated on several occasions that the leaders will prepare a proposal to be submitted to the United States and Canada in order to replace the OAS, accused of interference, with another regional organization in solidarity. Those reports and viewpoint were from Radio Havana, Cuba. Cuba's website is working well at radiohc.cu. Podcasts are not updated. On shortwave, Cuba may be heard from noon to 1 p.m. at 15140, and from 6 p.m. to midnight at either 6000, 6060, or 6100. All the times I announce are for Pacific Daylight Saving Time, so please adjust them to your time zone. On to NHK Japan. United Nations Secretary General Guterres says it is time to end the war on our planet and the wars on each other and focus on the pandemic and climate change. In Myanmar, Aung San Suu Kyi was back in court after two months of not being seen in public. A recent call by pro-democracy forces to push back against the military junta has resulted in many deaths. North and South Korea both launched missiles this week, further increasing tensions in the region. NHK Japan the head of the UN says it is time to put aside divisions that are man-made. Antonio Guterres opened the 76th session of the General Assembly. He says members are meeting at a time of great challenge. The war on our planet must end. The wars on each other need to end too. It's time to focus on fighting humanity's common enemy, the pandemic. The members of this assembly must speak with one voice. We need peace now. The pandemic forced meetings last year to be held online. This year, more than 100 heads of state or government plan to attend in person. They are expected to discuss the distribution of coronavirus vaccines. Leaders of countries where the shots are in short supply have accused those in wealthy nations of hoarding. They will also debate climate change. Some leaders are under pressure to set more ambitious targets for reducing emissions. UN leaders hope their talks will set the tone for the UN Climate Change Conference, which starts next month. Aung San Suu Kyi was back in court on Tuesday after proceedings in her case were suspended due to the pandemic. Myanmar's ousted de facto leader is facing multiple charges. They include violating coronavirus protocols and illegally possessing two-way radios. Her legal team denies all the charges. They said they had not seen Aung San Suu Kyi during the two-month-long suspension. She canceled Monday's hearing on health grounds. But they said the following day she does not have any serious problems. She was hit with numerous charges before proceedings were halted. That is expected to lengthen her detention period. A call by pro-democracy forces last week for a push against military rule has triggered attacks on military and police posts. Troops responded, causing many casualties. Aung San Suu Kyi's lawyers say she was aware of the situation but did not express a clear opinion about it.
North Korean media is flaunting new images of the missile launches that are causing alarm around the region. Pictures in the ruling party's newspaper appear to show ballistic missiles being fired from a train. Rodan Shimman, the official organ of the ruling Workers' Party, said the newly formed Rapid Missile Regiment held a launch drill on Wednesday. The photos show a missile rising from a train on a railway track with a large exhaust plume. The newspaper didn't mention what type of missile was fired. The report says the drill took place in a mountainous area in central North Korea. It says the missile accurately hit a target in the Sea of Japan, 800 kilometers away. The newspaper didn't say whether North Korean leader Kim Jong-un attended the drill. Also on Wednesday, South Korean officials announced they too had succeeded in firing off a ballistic missile from a submarine. Government officials say the missile was launched underwater and hit its target. President Moon Jae-in says the test had been planned and was not a response to what happened in North Korea. Meanwhile, the UN Security Council held an emergency meeting to discuss the latest concerns with North Korea, but members failed to present a united response and have not issued a statement. The meeting was held on Wednesday at the request of France and Estonia. It was the first Security Council meeting since March that discussed the country's missile tests. Under the Council's resolutions, North Korea is banned from using ballistic technology. Details of Wednesday's talks have not been disclosed, but the U.S. and European countries have been calling on North Korea to follow the resolutions. China and Russia say sanctions against the country should be eased. Countries also held an emergency meeting last March when North Korea launched another ballistic missile. They failed to show a united response. Those reports were from NHK Radio Japan. They are now heard from 9.30 to 10 p.m. at 7245 and 7355 or on the web at www.3.nhk.or.jp. If you have questions or comments about the shortwave report or could assist me by supporting this listener-funded program, I may be reached through the website and PayPal or by writing to Dan Roberts at P.O. Box 1162, Willits, California, 95490. Please, Help me continue producing this weekly show which I freely distribute to radio stations and the Internet. We will conclude with Germany's Radio Deutsche Welle. The United States, Australia, and the UK are forming a new military alliance for the Indo-Pacific region to increase pressure on China, which called the action Cold War Mentality. A German warship was rejected from a Chinese port Putin met with the Syrian president, and carbon emissions are back up at pre-pandemic levels. The left won elections in Norway, campaigning on climate responsibility, though the country is very dependent on oil and gas revenues. The Taliban thanked the world for pledging $1 billion in emergency aid. Germany's Radio Deutsche Welle. The United States, Britain and Australia are forming a new security alliance for the Indo-Pacific region. The country's leaders say the alliance, called AUKUS, will help them better share defense capabilities. It is also being seen as a way of countering China's growing military posturing in the region. 
Flanked by his allies, U.S. President Joe Biden announced a new chapter in foreign policy. The United States, Australia, and the United Kingdom have long been faithful and capable partners, and we're even closer today. Today, we're taking another historic step to deepen and formalize cooperation among all three of our nations, <clears throat> because we all recognize the imperative of ensuring peace and stability in the Indo-Pacific over the long term. For the UK, the alliance marks a return to a post-Brexit global Britain. We will have a new opportunity to reinforce Britain's place at the leading edge of science and technology, strengthening our national expertise, and perhaps most significantly, the UK, Australia, and the US will be joined even more closely together. China was the elephant in the room. None of the leaders mentioned the country by name, but its economic sanctions on Australia and pursuit of dominance in the region are thought to be the main reasons for the alliance. Now Australia will begin the process of procuring a nuclear-powered attack submarine. The first major initiative of AUKUS will be to deliver a nuclear-powered submarine fleet for Australia. Over the next 18 months, we will work together to seek to determine the best way forward to achieve this. The AUKUS countries aren't the only ones taking precautions. Taiwan recently held five days of army exercises in response to ongoing Chinese military drills nearby. It's the kind of delicate diplomatic situation that the new alliance will hope to influence in the future. For more on this, I'm now joined by Scott Lucas. He's an ex-professor of international politics at the University of Birmingham in the United Kingdom. Uh, Professor, give us the background to this new alliance. How did it come about and why now? Well, for each of the three countries, there are different motives. For Australia, there is the specific motive that its deal with France in 2016 for conventional powered submarines, uh, the cost had risen to $90 billion. There had been delays. It didn't appear it was going to get what it wanted. This is now an alternative for nuclear-powered submarines, which is an upgrade. Uh, they have longer range. They can stay in the water longer. For the United Kingdom, this is a chance after the Brexit departure, isolating itself from Europe, to say we're global Britain. We are very important with a focus on the Indo-Pacific region. And for the United States, it's a sign in the aftermath of Afghanistan, we have alliances, we are a world leader. And of course, it may be a sign, although it wasn't mentioned, that this is a toughening of Washington's line vis-a-vis -vis China in the near future. Mm. So in concrete terms, uh, what's this uh, cooperation going to look like? Uh, how far does it extend? Will this be an Eastern NATO in a way? I think we need to be careful before making all those leaps. Remember, this is specifically just an agreement about submarines, um, not even submarines with nuclear weapons. Australia cannot have those under the Non-Proliferation Treaty. It does have the potential to be more. So, for example, do you have permanent basing facilities in Australia for the boats, of, the ships of other countries, the UK and the US included? Uh, do you have other arrangements in the Pacific for cooperation? But to call this an Eastern NATO, well, two things. First of all, remember that China is still Australia's number one trading partner. So do you really want to provoke confrontation with Beijing by having a defense alliance across the entire region? And secondly, you to have a NATO, you would need other countries to come into it. Mm. And do South Korea, 
Japan, the Philippines, really want to join that type of pact given their own complex relationship with China. Mm. So will this be a deterrent to China? I think China's assessing its position right now. Uh, I think it's notable that although the Chinese embassy uh, in the United States said this is a Cold War mentality, neither of the Communist Party's leading English language newspapers, Global Times or China Daily, even mention the US-UK-Australia agreement this morning. So I think Beijing will assess this as one part of its calculations, because as much as we're talking about the Defense Alliance today, remember that China's foremost push is for an alternative economic system, the Belt and Road Initiative. And that alternative economic system is a different way of approaching global relations than simply saying, let's have some nuclear-powered submarines. Scott Lucas, the former professor of international politics at the University of Birmingham. Germany says one of its warships has been denied entry to a Chinese harbor. The frigate has been traveling across the Indo-Pacific to show support for regional allies in the face of China's military expansion in the South China Sea. Beijing claims control over large parts of the key waterway. Syrian leader Bashar al-Assad has met with Russian President Vladimir Putin in Moscow. Putin criticized the presence of foreign forces in Syria without a UN mandate. Russia is Syria's most powerful ally in the conflict. Both Turkey and the U.S. have soldiers in the north and east of the country. Severe flooding is affecting parts of southern France following torrential rainfall. Traffic has been disrupted in some cities and weather warnings remain in effect. Around 800 rescue workers have been deployed to the area. Authorities say in the Gard region, one person is missing. UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres says immediate action is needed to stop the planet from warming by more than 1.5 degrees Celsius. A new report from the organization has found carbon emissions are now back at pre-pandemic levels. The report has been issued weeks before world leaders gather for a climate summit in Glasgow. For these winners, smiles come easy. After eight years in the opposition, Norway's Labour Party will now return to governing the country. We have waited and we have hoped and we have worked so hard and we can finally say we did it. As the vote count progressed Monday evening, Prime Minister Erna Solberg had to admit defeat. The voters want another majority to govern Norway for the next four years. The Conservatives' work in government is over for now. Ahead of the vote, many said they would cast their ballot for more climate action. Norway's wealth is largely attributed to its rich oil reserves. For me, personally, the main issues for this election is uh, the environment, uh, because it's, um, I feel it's uh, becoming more and more important. So I think that uh, the politicians ought to take responsibility. And uh, I feel that a lot of uh, my friends uh, have the same uh, topic. The big questions for me in this campaign are the climate, what Norway as a country should be living of. The Labour Party is likely to form an alliance with the Socialist Left Party and the Centre Party in a left-leaning government. The results show that the percentage of women in Parliament will rise to nearly 50% for the first time. 
Soon the five countries in the Nordic region will all be led by leftist governments. In Afghanistan, the Taliban are seeking legitimacy, while the Afghan people just want food on their tables. In the face of a humanitarian crisis, the country's acting foreign minister now thanked the world for pledging more than $1 billion in emergency aid to Afghanistan. But it remains unclear how much of this aid will reach hungry Afghans. Many organizations are still reluctant to deal with the Taliban. Those reports were from Germany's Radio Deutsche Welle, which may be heard at a combined audio-video website, DW.com, as well as on YouTube at their channel called DW News. One of my goals in producing this show is to encourage people like you to listen to international broadcasts, get a global perspective. Every Thursday evening, I post a new shortwave report at the website for the show that's outfarpress.com. At my website, you can also listen to past shows. Please take a moment and make a safe donation online through PayPal. There's a link at my website along with the podcast link and get advice for listening at home. This shortwave report, which is now in its 25th year of production, remains free to rebroadcast upon notification. The shortwave report is produced and distributed off the electrical grid in Northern California using solar panels. I'm your host and producer, Dan Roberts. Thanks for listening.